This week, Dr. Jackson sat down with his daughter and the host of The Hannah Miller Show to discuss their concerns about what's happening in some local hospital systems. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So I am, as you know, if you're listening to this on a podcast, Hannah Miller of The Hannah Miller Show, and I'm doing my first rumble, but I have with me today my dad, who is Dr. Robert Jackson, who also hosts a podcast, More Than Medicine, and something happened this week, and so I've invited him on, and he invited me on to his show, so we're kind of going back and forth with this, because we both felt that this was very important, and we wanted both of our listenerships to hear this and to know about what's going on in our very own county with our hospital systems. So, uh, Dad, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and give us some of your credentials for with your background, because I know what we're going to be talking about today has a lot to do with the medical field and that kind of thing. So, and people may not know all of that information. All right. First of all, my name is Dr. Robert Jackson. I'm a family practice physician for the last 41 years. I graduated medical school in 1981. I attended a residency program in, at this very hospital where I'm now employed in family medicine. I practiced family medicine for um, 38 years since that time, and I'm now part-time at, a, at the Spartanburg Regional Medical Center, where I work at a rural family medicine clinic for the last two and a half years. And, and what's happening now uh, is something that I could have never foreseen, um, but our hospital system is requiring uh, our employees to wear a mask and to um, test themselves for COVID every pay period, even if they have no symptoms of COVID. And, and who is this specifically for? It's not well, just for everybody, though, right? No, it's, it's, a, it's a discriminatory policy. It's only for those who have requested, as is their constitutional right, a religious or medical exemption. And interestingly, uh, out of the 6,000 employees in the Spartanburg Regional Hospital System, somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 employees requested oh, wow. a religious or medical exemption. I don't know the exact number. I've heard 2,000. I've heard as many as 4,000. So I really don't know But the it's exact not number. 150 employees. No. You it's, know, it's, it's a, a significant sig- number. That's right. It's a, <laughs> it's a large number. A large percentage of employees have a religious exemption or a medical exemption, which is their constitutional right, and the hospital has to oblige them, uh, has to accommodate them. And and so now, at the behest of the DNV, they are now being asked to wear a mask or swab their nose every pay period. How often is every pay period? Every two weeks. Every two weeks. Every two weeks, even if they're asymptomatic. Now, this is completely ridiculous because just two weeks ago, the CDC abandoned their mask policy. Now, now get this. For the last two years, the hospital has told my patients who went into the hospital with COVID that they could not utilize ivermectin to treat them because the CDC declared it was not part of their, quote, protocol. Mm -hmm. That's right. And now asymptomatic employees are being required to wear a mask, 
even though it's no longer a part of the CDC, quote, protocol. How ironic, how hypocritical Mm -hmm. is that? Mm -hmm. Well, to just say on the one hand, we're going to be following all down the line what the CDC says, and then just, and then now, just turning a total blind eye to what the CD says, CDC says and what they say that we should be doing in their protocols and et cetera. So what do, you, what do you think this is all about, though? Why do you think Spartanburg Regional is doing this? The short answer is that they're trying to be compliant with the requirement of an organization called the DNV. That stands for the, the Det Norvask Veritas. That's a Norwegian organization that was started in the 1800s as a shipbuilding accrediting organization. Since that time, they have expanded into uh, healthcare, energy, transportation, manufacturing, and they are an accrediting organization for all manner of businesses. Now, you understand that hospitals cannot be insured unless they're accredited. So, so all, all of that makes sense. But here is an international organization, not a, a United States organization, an international organization that we are beholden to. And, and it's not just our hospital, but, but literally thousands of hospitals in the United States are beholden to this accrediting organization that is not even U.S. It is, it is a foreign Entity. And I think one of the most important things that we've learned over the last two years is how dangerous it is to have connections to foreign entities, especially when you're talking about the medical field, um, because you just have to see what happened with China, our relationship with them. And then you've got things happening between Russia and Ukraine right now. And you just realize the importance of being independent when it comes to your gas, your oil, when it comes to your agriculture, when it comes to your medical industry, sure. all of these things, it's very important for us to be be independent. Yet here we have hundreds, if not thousands of hospitals reliant on an international body that is here in, in Spartanburg County dictating to you guys and employees how you must proceed in order to get your paycheck, despite what our national governing body, the CDC, and I say governing body, but I'm putting air quotes around yeah. that, the CDC says. So despite them, we've got this international body coming in. And before we proceed, though, on that route, let me ask you this. Why Why do you think that, kind of going back to our first question, why do you think that they've begun to require that? Because they backed off of some of that, the masking and, and all of that for their employees for a while. And then they pounced back on it. And we were talking earlier about a few things that, you know, it violates their sincerely held religious objections. It violates their constitutional rights. Uh, it places an undue burden on these folks. And all of those things, of course, bring you and I back to the Constitution institution, which other than the word of God is what we abide by mm-hmm. as Americans. That's right. um, you know, Hannah, it, it's an interesting question because first of all, only two hospitals in South Carolina mm. are even complying with this so-called mandate, Spartanburg Regional Hospital and Self Memorial Hospital down in Greenwood, South Carolina, are the only two hospitals that are complying with this so-called mandate. And, and that's very suspect. And, you know, why would just those two hospitals out of all the hospitals in South Carolina? I mean, I even checked with MUSC, which MUSC has been pounding on the vaccines for children and all of those things for the last two years. 
And I made sure that MUSC, that's been such an advocate for following the CDC to the letter, yeah. is not doing this. And they are not. They're not. They're not. It's just these two hospitals. Well, I think it's financial compensation. Um, what people don't realize is that the hospitals are financially reimbursed for administering COVID tests. And unfortunately, South Carolina law allows for this. A House bill passed uh, last year or maybe the year before, I forget exactly when it was, H3126, entitled Vaccine Mandates. Um, Our legislature ratified it. Uh, Governor McMaster signed it into law. And the bill not only approved the unlawful and regular testing of asymptomatic and unvaccinated individuals, but also allocated our tax dollars to fund it. More than that, to me, it seems like blackmail by CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They are withholding, threatening to withhold monies to our hospital system if they do not require masking of the unvaccinated employees that have a religious or medical exemption, and they're threatening to withhold financial support, which our hospital system declares is 50% of their budget. The money from CMS, federal money, is 50% of their budget, and the CMS is threatening to withhold that money if they don't require these employees with a religious or medical exemption to mask and swab their nose every pay period. Now, in any other venue, we would consider that blackmail. Mm -hmm. That's corruption at the highest level. And the thing about that, too, is you and I were talking about this as well, that you could get COVID and get over COVID twice (laughs) in a pay period. In a a two-week pay (laughs) period. In a two-week pay period, and then swab your nose and And not have it. And not have it. That's exactly right. So what is the purpose? What does this prove? How does it protect anybody within the hospital system? Because if you got paid two weeks ago, then you got COVID the next day, five days later, you're better, and then a day later, you get it again, and you have it for five days, and then you're better, and then you test. What what does that prove? What does that prove to anybody? I had COVID six weeks ago. I had symptoms for three days, and then I was fine. I was perfectly well. I had no further symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I tested myself the second time, and on the fifth day, I was... My test was negative. That's right. And so this is this is something that it doesn't do anything to protect anybody except that it puts an undue burden and it puts it puts its finger on those who have exemptions from this thing. And and see, constitutionally, the hospital cannot place an undue burden Mm -hmm. on those with a religious exemption or a medical exemption. That's a violation of their constitutional rights. And more than that, it's not scientifically sound, just as we're talking about. The vaccine itself doesn't prevent COVID. It doesn't prevent its transmission. More than that, we all know now that the vaccine isn't safe. We all know people who've received that vaccine, who've had heart attacks or strokes or blood clots after receiving the vaccine. We all know people who've had the vaccine twice and a booster who still got COVID and then transmitted it to their family members. I, I know I know people know personally. Folks like that. Well, and then we had, what, what did Florida come out and say, and I know I'm, I'm going off the cuff with this, Florida's um, attorney general or their what, what, the, the state, surge, state surgeon, surgeon general, general, state surgeon general, I'm sorry. He came out and announced that they're putting a total pause on the giving of this vaccine to young men between ages, is it 18, 18 and 39? 34. 34. Yeah. Um, because 
because of the increase of myocarditis and how drastically those numbers, they'd seen an increase in that demographic after receiving the vaccine. And they are pumping the brakes and they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. And again, again, we see Florida being a leader in exposing the truth regarding COVID tyranny. And I, I expect other states will do the same thing, in the, in, at least in that demographic. Yeah. Because it's very obvious that young, athletic, mm-hmm. active young men or at much higher risk of myocarditis and sudden death after receiving the vaccine, as is evidenced by the fact that so many athletes who've received the vaccine have collapsed or died on the athletic field. And see, they're in front of the cameras. There's no hiding it, you know, so they have to, they're, they're going to be the first ones to get attention and for us to pump the brakes because people are seeing it on their televisions in real time happening at these different athletic events. You're exactly right. That's exactly right. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about, again, going further into that question about why this is happening. And there was one more point that you and I wanted to make about it being kind of a pilot program. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, my concern is this could be a pilot. I don't know this for certain, but I'm concerned that this could be a pilot program at our hospital in self-memorial hospital for CMS to ascertain, to determine whether our community will accept this infringement on our constitutional rights and further implementation across this state and across the country will depend on our response here in Spartanburg County. There we're looking to see will the, will the employees here, will their families, will folks in this county accept this infringement on our rights, or will we stand up, draw a line in the sand and say, no, we're not going to accept this? Mm -hmm. Because if we are just sheeple and we just say, okay, fine, we'll swab our nose, we'll we'll wear the mask, we'll accept this infringement on our uh, constitutional rights, and they look and say, okay, these folks will accept it, then we'll start doing this everywhere else. And it may not be just here in Spartanburg that this is happening. There may be a little another hospital in Arkansas yeah. or Utah or whatever, but there they could possibly be looking at those things and saying, okay, well, it didn't work in South Carolina, but it did work in Arkansas amongst this demographic. Yeah. And so they could possibly be gathering. And, you know, we don't want to get too far into conjecturing and, and speculation on what could be the motivation because it's very easy to say it's money. And then generally it comes down to the bottom line. And you really don't have to go much further than just realizing that there's financial compensation for these guys, a big financial compensation for them to continue forward with the testing and the masking and all of that. But it is, you and I as constitutionalists are concerned with this infringement. And we've already seen how the last two years, you know, when they rolled out the, I mean, come on, let's just be honest, 15 days to slow the, slow the spread. That right there was a pilot program, guys. That's right. That was a pilot program, and it worked. It worked because people put up their hand. Oh, well, I mean, if that's what we got to do to go along to get yeah, along. We'll surrender our rights for, for, 15, two, for days, 15 days. And then another 15 and days. And then another 15. And then six months. And then, yes, exactly. Right. And this is this is what you and I are concerned is going to happen. Because, look, you still, you still go to the I go to the hospital every week, and I know you're there every day. Uh, in your office, it's a part of Spartanburg Regional, and they got those masks on. 15 days to slow the spread? 
I, you know, you, I still, I, they still want me to wear a mask. I don't wear a mask. I just say thank you very much, you know, and just keep on my merry way. But almost every other person in that hospital every week that I go is still wearing a mask. And I'm like, guys, are we not like past this now? Do we not see? CDC uh, gave them permission yes, to not wear a the mask. The CDC and said, they're still wearing, and it. they're still wearing it. And that because because why? Because there's a little sign on the front of the door that's about yay big that says they need to. And you know, the encouraging thing is that it shows that the American people. People are peaceful people. I, you know, co- that's the one compliant. thing. They're compliant. They're you can compliant. say compliant. Yeah. Uh, I, I try to. I try to think of it. You know, we're not. We're not by and large rebel rousers who just want war all the time, which is how the world likes to portray us. Uh, portray us, cowboys. Yeah, this cowboy. We, we really are fairly compliant, and to the point that it's to our detriment. That's right. <laughs> so I anyway, I. Uh, but apart from. You are, and maybe you've already covered this a little bit, but apart from your from religious objections, what are your medical concerns with the COVID shots? Well, I have a lot of concerns medically. Um, let's go back in time a little bit. Begat, beginning in January of 2021, when the COVID shots were being first introduced, mm-hmm. I told all my patients, do not take this so-called vaccine until it's been on the market for a year. I remember us having those conversations. Now, I, I, that's not just for the COVID vaccine. I've told my patients that for 40 years. Yeah, that's Anytime, always been your policy. It's always been my policy. If a, if a new medication came on the market, or a new vaccine for that matter, I told my patients don't take it until it's been on the market for a year. I don't care how much it's on the television. I don't care how much the drug reps hype it. Don't take it for a year until we have an opportunity to see what kind of serious adverse events may come up that were not discovered during the drug trials. And in 40 years, I've seen multiple drugs and multiple vaccines pulled off the market within the first year because of just that thing, serious adverse events. Well, within three months of this so-called vaccine being pulled, put onto the market, I began hearing of serious adverse events. And some of my patients experienced that. One of my 42-year-old young males, no cardiac history, no family history of cardiac events, suddenly died within five days of receiving a COVID vaccine. Two of my adults, one, the man was 74, the wife was 69. He had hypertension. She had no health problems. They both got a COVID shot within Five days, he died suddenly of a stroke. Within 10 days, she died suddenly of a heart attack. And neither one of them had any pre-existing illnesses. And all of a sudden, I began to say to myself, there's something wrong with this vaccine. And I began to do research. And all of a sudden, I began to hear of all manner of serious adverse events. I went to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, and it was there. There were lots of reports of people having serious adverse events, but the mainstream media was ignoring it and suppressing it. And so then I began to hear of people who were having success at treating early treatment of COVID with a repurposed drug, drug hydroxychloroquine. And interestingly, one of my patients called me. He actually was a friend. Okay, a a friend of one of my first cousins. And I'd met this man and he was an industrial plumber. Uh, He had lots of of employees and he'd been sick in bed for two weeks with COVID. Couldn't get out of bed. He was so sick. 
And so my cousin, who was a, a, a pharmacist in his former life, called me and said, look, would you prescribe hydroxychloroquine for our mutual friend? Well, I, I'd heard about it, but I had never prescribed it. So I called him, talked to him. There was no contraindication. And I said, Marvin, I'll prescribe it. And uh, I need you to call me back in a week and let me know how you're doing. So I prescribed it. A week later, he calls me on the phone. And I could tell in the background was the sound of heavy equipment operating. He was sitting in the cab of his diesel truck. I could hear the motor running. And he was just calling to exclaim to me and shout out to me that he was remarkably better and already back at work within wow. five days of taking hydroxychloroquine. He'd been in the bed for two weeks. No, I think it was three weeks. And his family doctor in Columbia, South Carolina, would not even consider prescribing the hydroxychloroquine. A year later to the day, he sent me a thank you note thanking me for being willing to go out on a limb and prescribe the hydroxychloroquine. Well, that started my journey of investigating not only that medication, but ivermectin. Now, interestingly enough, I got a note from my hospital system after I had begun prescribing ivermectin saying to me, we wish you would not do that. Mm -hmm. And I told them, you stick to administrating, I'll stick to treating my patients. You well, actually testified in front of the South Carolina Senate Medical Affairs Committee regarding that very topic, did you I, not? I did, I did. Yeah. And, and some folks may recognize you from that video who are watching this. They may say, how, how do I recognize that doctor? It's because that video, and it went sort of viral last summer or last year because people really resonated with a doctor who is willing to stand up for them and look at these administrators and say, look, you stick to what you're good at. I'll stick to what I'm good at and let me and my patient in the privacy of the exam room decide what's best for their health. That's right. Listen, doctors have prescribed repurposed drugs for many, That's many right. years. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time doctors have done that. Every doctor does it. And no doctor ever looks at the ceiling and says, oh, my goodness, I wonder what the CDC or the NIH thinks about me prescribing <laughs> this repurposed drug. I've never done that in 41 years. Right. And doctors don't do that now until this COVID epidemic. And the CDC started telling doctors they should not prescribe ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And that's ridiculous. And any doctor who bows to a CDC diktat is foolish. And they're not preserving the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. So that's one of my concerns. Now, let me just share with you a report that I made to the adjutant general of South Carolina. Early this year, I think it was in January of 2022, I went down to Columbia and I spoke to the adjutant general on behalf of our uh, National Guard here in South Carolina. And I told him that I was a family practice doctor. My father was in the Air National Guard uh, many years ago before he died. And I told him about the vaccine adverse rep uh, event reporting system. And that at that time in January, there were over 20,000 cases of myocarditis. There'd been 20,000 deaths attributable to the vaccine. Uh, there'd been 10,500 cases of myocardial infarction and more than 100,000 hospitalizations for serious adverse events. And, of course, that was important to him because uh, his young military recruits were being forced to get the COVID vaccine, many of them against their wishes, and that would affect their military readiness, preparedness. 
I also talked to him about a cardiologist, Dr. Kilk Milhoen, who had evaluated elite athletes in the Big Ten Athletic Conference after receiving the COVID vaccine, and he estimated that 50% of those athletes experienced subclinical myocarditis that was detectable by MRI, and most of those athletes had no symptoms, but the subclinical myocarditis put them at serious risk for sudden death and or the development of future congestive heart failure. And again, he should understand as adjutant general that that affected his elite recruits, many of whom were very young and very athletic. I also shared with him um, the fact that the CEO, CEO of a very large insurance company in Indiana that very month had called together all of his insurance salesmen um, to address a serious concern, and he reported to his agents that they had experienced a, listen to this, 40% increase in non-COVID deaths nationwide in the 18 to 64 age group that was unprecedented in the 200-year history of their company. He explained that a natural disaster like tornadoes, hurricanes, and floods would sometimes cause a 10% increase in mortality in that age group, but never a 40% increase. He also explained that the increase in the death rate was industry-wide and not peculiar to just their company. And they seriously speculated that this increase was due to the COVID vaccine. And of course, again, I explained to the adjutant general that that was the demographic that affected his military recruits. And then lastly, I shared with him that worldwide, there'd been 300 plus professional and college athletes who had collapsed or died suddenly on the playing field while participating in their particular athletic endeavors in just the 12 months prior. The common denominator for most of them had been the reception of a COVID vaccine within days prior. In previous years, there have been less than 20 athletes to die or collapse per year on the playing field. For some reason, this astounding information has not made its way into the mainstream media. Once again, these elite athletes are the same age and athletic conditioning of many of your young military recruits. And that affects seriously the military readiness of our National Guard in South Carolina. Well, I know that, what's your message to the people of South Carolina who just appear unconcerned about this development, either because it doesn't affect them personally or because they're willing to accept the stigmatization and burdens of these mandates over the risk of ridicule and retribution for defying them? What would you say to those folks? I would say to just folks in Spartanburg County. Yeah. Just the employees of our hospital system. I would say, first of all, it's time for us to draw a line in the sand and put on our Don't Tread on Me (laughs) t-shirts. It's about time. It's time. (laughs) I'm serious. Uh, You see, we are subject to what I call gradualism, what I call creepinism. The federal government overreach is just creeping up on us like kudzu in your backyard. And we have to be aware of that. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Do not accept even the slightest infringement on your religious freedom or your constitutional rights or the relentless onslaught of federal gradualism will forge the shackles 
that forever bind you. No one else is coming to deliver you. You alone can defend your freedoms. When legally constituted government begins to overstep its bounds, it becomes a tyrant, and it is the responsibility of the citizens to call them out, to resist, and to be non-compliant. Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information about the Jackson Family Ministry, Dr. Jackson's books, or to schedule a speaking engagement, go to their Facebook page, Instagram, or their webpage at jacksonfamilyministry.com. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Production at bobsloan.com.